Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. With over 100 books written and also over 200 public debates, Josh McDowell has been a champion for Christ for over 50 years. So we are so excited to welcome Josh McDowell to the Good Fight Radio Show. God bless you, Josh. I like the title of the show. I love a good fight. You know what? I I think it'd be great just to start off for a lot of people that maybe they've known your books like more than a carpenter, uh, you know, and so forth. I mean, there's so many books that you've written. Maybe they know some of your work, even your son's work, Sean, as well over there at Talbot. But I would love for them to just know your testimony and how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I was brought up in a small town in Michigan, about 1800 on a farm. My parents had never gone beyond the second grade. When I went off to the to college. I went off to Kellogg College in Battle Creek, Michigan first, and then Wheaton College, because Wheaton wouldn't let me in my first two years for sure. When I went off to college, I was hurt. I was mad. I was bitter. In other words, I was ticked off. Uh, I was ticked off at my parents. I was ticked off at God. My father um, was an alcoholic. And uh, I hardly ever knew him sober. When he wasn't literally trying to kill my mother, I was trying to literally kill him. And so in the university, I was the happiest-go-lucky guy around. But I saw this small group of people. There weren't very many. There were eight students, two prof- I think eight, and two professors and one of their wives. And their lives were different. They kind of stood out. Now, most people stand out because they're weird. These people stood out. <coughs> because they seem to have a genuine love and acceptance of each other. And I wanted that. But the thing that really stood out that you don't see in most places is they had the same love and accept of each other for people outside their group. So I was so, with my background and all, I wanted that. And so I made friends with them. And one day I'm sitting around the table with this young lady and, oh, she was cute. Man, she was pretty. I just think all Christians were ugly. I really did. I figured if you couldn't make it anywhere else in life, you became a Christian. But uh, she just looked at me with a little smile, which was irritating, and said two words. I never thought I'd hear in the university as part of the solution. She just looked at me and with a little smile said, Jesus Christ. I said, oh, for heaven's sakes, don't give me that crap. I'm sick and tired of religion, the church, the Bible, Christians, Christianity. I want nothing to do with it. All I know is, whoo. She had a lot of courage or a lot of convictions. In fact, I think she had both. I think you would call it, uh, she had guts. And she shot right back at me and said, Mr., we didn't tell you religion, the church, the Bible, Christians, or Christianity. We told you the person of Jesus Christ. Then I can't believe it. Right there in the university, they challenged me, now get this, to intellectually, to use my mind, to examine two things. One, the Bible as being the word of God and true. Now, I thought that was a joke. 
because I truly believe Christians had two brains. One was lost, the other was out looking for it. I thought Christians were walking idiots. Second, they challenged me to examine Jesus Christ as a son of God and the Messiah. Well, I just laughed at them, but they kept challenging me. In fact, they ticked me off. And um, now don't get me wrong. Everything those Christians were doing was totally appropriate. I was the problem. And I shoved all that hurt and everything down into my life. When they said, Jesus Christ, it came out like a volcano. And so they so ticked me off. I said, okay, I'll accept your challenge. They got all excited, thought they had a convert. And then I pulled the, took the air out of their tires. I said, I'm not going to do it to prove anything. I'm going to do it to refute you. The whole background of that big book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, was to write a book against the Christian faith and make a mockery of it. So I left the university. I'd made a lot of money my first two years in college. I left the university, traveled throughout all through the United States, England, Germany, France, Switzerland, and the Middle East, gathering the evidence to write the book to refute them. I was returning home from Israel, and I had to stay overnight in uh, London. And I'd heard about this small museum library that had a lot of manuscript, biblical manuscripts and scrolls. Because my idea was if I could show that the scrolls and the manuscripts were not reliable, my case was won because the scriptures are based on those. And so I went to this library for about three hours reading, studying all. And finally, I was sitting at the desk and I leaned back in my chair. I hooked my fingers behind my head and right in front of everyone, which was probably three people, I just said, it's true. It's true. It's true. Now, what I meant by that is I concluded I could hold the scriptures in my hands and answer three questions positively. These are the three questions I wanted to refute. One, in the scriptures, I have what was written down 2,000 years ago. It has not been changed. What people didn't like, they didn't take out. What they did like, they put in. It's, we have the same thing today. It was written down 2,000 years ago. Second question is, was what was written down true? Because if what was written down wasn't true, then I could care less that what I have is what was written down. And so did Jesus do that? Did he say that? Second, was it true that he said it? Now, you saw the difference, that he said it. I concluded that the Bible is true and reliable, and Jesus spoke those things. But my third question was the clincher. Was what Jesus said true? See, I concluded that, that he said it. That was true that he said it. But then I had to deal with, was what he said true? And what happened was, I uh, examined that very carefully, and I came to the conclusion that the Bible was true and Christ was the Messiah. I struggled with that, and finally that December the 19th at 8.30 at night, at the end of the second year in the university, I became a Christian. Somebody said, how do you know? I was there. I prayed four things that literally transformed my life. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Second, I said, thank you that you can forgive my sins. And I said, forgive me. I knew the Bible said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. I said, forgive me. Third, again, I knew the Bible was true, and I knew the Bible said, but to as many as received him, Jesus, 
To them, they gave the right to become a son of God. Not as to many as went to church, to many sincere, etc. So I said, right now, whatever that means, I've never been to a Bible study. I said, I receive you into my life as my Savior and Lord. Take over my life. The last thing I prayed was just, it was something like just thank you. And nothing happened. Nothing. No bolt of lightning. I didn't rush out and buy a harp. Nothing happened. But in about six months, a year and a half, my entire life changed. And one of the most important areas was I called my dad. I hated my dad so much. And I met him at Battle Creek, Michigan. And I said, I want to have dinner with you at a 50s diner. Well, of course, it was in the 50s. But it was at a diner. And we sat there. And I, was, I came, invited him there to tell him how much I hated him. And that I never wanted to see him again. The waitress took our order, walked away. And I said, Dad, I've come here to tell you, I love you. And I froze. I don't know who was most surprised, him hearing it or me saying it. That's when I knew something had happened in my life. And my father came to Christ, and I've been writing the story since then for years. Let's start off with Jesus being God, the deity of Christ. If I'm a non-believer, and I think that this is something that separates uh, most cults, right? Uh, the deity of Christ specifically. And so I want to see what kind of case you can give uh, biblically for the deity of Christ. And we have, what, six hours to do this? Roughly. Roughly. <laughs> a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> There was a very popular book that came out several years ago called The Da Vinci Code. It was a runaway bestseller in the world by Dan Brown. And I wrote a book about it. I concluded about 95% of it was all false because he never even documented anything. But uh, 90, 95% of it was all false. And he said in there, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man but a man nonetheless. People in the university and everything just took that for gospel truth. Well, is that the truth? I had, in my setting out, to write Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the big gold book that's uh, on your right, the viewing it on the left, um, to write that book, I had to do two things. One, I had to show I wanted to show that Christ never claimed to be God because if he never claimed to be God, my case was one. But second, I had to show, was there any evidence to support his claims? Because I think evidence uh, all the time, facts, truth. Is there any truth? Is there, are there any facts? Is there any evidence to show that he was the son of God, not just cl claiming to be? So with his claims, First, Peter claimed uh, that he was God, his followers. Uh, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, the Bible says he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus nailed Peter. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Let's get down to brass tacks. That's what everybody else is saying. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, 
you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, did Jesus say, where in the world did you get that? No way. Come on. No. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Reveal what? That I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Then who did reveal it? He said, but my father who is in heaven. You can't get much clearer than that. His enemies confirmed he said it. This is called positive testimony from a hostile source. When you get those who disagree with you, agree with you in a point, you're on pretty solid ground with the jury. It's called positive testimony from a hostile source. At least that's what I call it. And in Matthew 27, it relates, in the same way the chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him. These were religious leaders who despised Christ. They thought he was a false messiah. And they were mocking him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights him. For he said, now you're heavy. The Pharisees, the scribes, those that despise Christ, confirming this. For he said, I am the son of God. Whoa. When you get that positive testimony from a hostile source, that's fairly powerful uh, evidence. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. He can forgive. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you're quoting from Isaiah, where Isaiah wrote, I, even I, am the one who wipes off your transgressions for my own sake. God saying that that I am the one that forgives. I am the one that wipes the sin away. Then the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testing against you? But he kept silent. They kept saying, they're, they're saying that you claim to be the son of God, that you're blaspheming, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, why don't you answer? He kept silent. And they did it again and again. And the high priest questioned him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Finally, Christ answered. Why? When the priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He said, I adjure you by the name of the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. When they did that, they put Jesus under oath. I adjure you by the, by the living God. They put him under oath. So therefore, Jesus had to answer. And Jesus simply answered, I am. I am. Folks, you can't get much clearer on that. Uh, Christ claimed to be God himself, not only his followers, but Christ himself. In John 5, 15 to 18, listen to this. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. When Jesus made that statement, it was a bold statement that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. You say, how can you say that? I can say my father's working until now, and, and I am working doesn't mean I'm claiming to be God. But when Jesus used the phrase, 
my father. You would never use that phrase without adding the phrase, which aren't in heaven. My father, which is in heaven, is working. But when Jesus just said, my father's working, in that culture, in that language, in that religious setting, to his audience, that was a direct claim to deity, as clear as you could say, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You say, Josh, how can you say it? See how his audience responded, the Jews. For this reason, therefore, the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Whew. Even the Jews confirmed that he was blaspheming because he, as a man, was claiming to be God Yahweh in human flesh. And Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered him, I showed you many good works. All from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, makes yourself out to be God. Why? How could you get that from that sentence? One, you always see how does the audience respond in that culture, in that language, in that setting. They knew from their language and everything, he was claiming to be God uh, right off the bat. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, in the Jewish mind, that was a direct claim to deity and being God Yahweh. Well, somebody says, well, I can say I and the Father are one in purpose and meaning and goal, but that's not what it meant there. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, the one is in the construction, meaning one in essence, and nature. So this is what the Jews heard. I and God Yahweh the Father are one in essence and nature. Woo! In that day, you could not get be more clear. Now, the last thing I want to share is, is there any evidence for it? Uh, I could go on and on with Christ claiming to be God. I want to go through one piece of evidence, and then we'll go into the resurrection. In the scriptures, Jesus would say to the people, don't you get it to his disciples? They didn't get it. He said, everything that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus constantly appealed to Old Testament prophecy, 333 of them, about the coming Messiah, who would be the Son of God, the living Christ. And he would go into the temple and open the scriptures and say, in this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your life. I am he. That's what he was saying. Now, these prophecies were written down over 500 years before Christ was born. 500 years. Professing me, I don't think it was 500 years. Josh, I don't think these prophecies were written down after Christ was born. Then they wrote them out to make it look like he fulfilled them. That sounds pretty good, unless you want to think. Why? Take the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Has all the prophecies in it translated into Greek. 
Now, history tells us and documents the Septuagint was initiated 250 B.C., 250 years before Christ. So if you say it's not a 500-year gap, folks, <laughs> the Septuagint proves it's a 250-year gap. So you got the same problem. These prophecies written down and all 333 specifically fulfilled in Christ. I have an entire large chapter in the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that documents all 333 prophecies. But I want to share with you a handful. God wrote an address to identify his son. Do you know your address separates you from every person alive in the world, billions of people? You say, what do you mean? Look, the country, USA, separates your country from all others. The state, say the state of Texas, separates your state from all others. The city of Dallas would separate your city from all the other cities in the state of Texas, country USA, in the world. And then your zip code, 926209, whatever it is, would separate your zip code from all the others in the city. Your street name, the name of your street would separate your street from all the others in the zip code area. Your house number would separate your house from all the other houses on that street, that zip code, that city, that state, that country, USA, and the world. And then your last name would separate you from anyone else living nearby another last name. And your first name, say Josh, separates you from three and a half billion people alive? Did you ever realize that, how unique your address is? Well, God wrote an address to identify his son. And he did it through prophecy. I just want to share just, I think it's about eight of these prophecies. Just a handful. Uh, I don't have time to do all 333. But think of this. First it says, Jesus said, you can know my son is because he'd be born of the seed of the woman. Why the seed of the woman? Everybody else in the Bible is referred to as the seed of the man, the virgin birth. Then we go down to recorded time. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Do you realize every nation in the world could be traced back to one of those three individuals? Now God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world when he said it be through the lineage of Shem. Now Shem, God says, I'm going to narrow this down. And he called a man owl the Ur of the Chaldees of the lineage of Shem. And he said, you will know who my sin is because you will be a descendants of Abraham. Now Abraham had eight children and now God eliminates seven eighths of the family line. when he says, you can know who my son is because he'd be born in the seed of the woman and he shared the descendants of Abraham and a line of Isaac. Now Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now God eliminates 50% of the line of Isaac. Do you see the historical probability, Bella? He says, you know who my son is? Because he'd be born of the seed of the woman, and he sins of Abraham, line of Isaac, and the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, out, out of which developed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now God eliminates whew, 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel for his son's interest in humanity. He said, you could tell who my son is, the Messiah, because he'd be born of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the sons of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, and of the tribe of Judah. Now, within the tribe of Judah, there were scores of family lines. God eliminates every single family line but one. 
when he says, you can tell my son is, because he'd be born to see the woman, and he sons of Abraham, land of mine, land of Jacob, tribe of Judah, and of the family of Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight children. Now, God eliminates seven-eighths of the family line of Jesse. When he says, you can easily tell who my son is, the Messiah, because he'll be born of the seed of the woman, the least sons, sons of Abraham, line of Ireland, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, and of the house of David. Then we go down to about 1012 BC with a very unusual prophecy in the book of Psalms where he says, you can tell who my son is because he's going to be born of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the of Abraham, line of Ireland, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, house of David, and he will be crucified. His hands and his feet will be pierced against the cross. People say, come on, Josh, thousands were crucified. Yes, but that method of crucifixion was not put into effect by the Romans. Now get this, until 800 years after this prophecy. Then God narrows it down further with a very unique prophecy. When God says, you can know who my son is, because he'd be born to see the woman, leave sin, sins of Abraham, line of line, line of Jacob, travel Judah, family, Jesse, house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces, not 29.99, 30 pieces of silver, not gold, thrown on the floor, not placed on the table, and it will be in the temple. And it will be used to buy a burial plot. And a professor said to me, Josh, if God was that smart, he could have told us when it would happen. I said he did in Zechariah, or, or excuse me, Malachi. You might call it Malachi. But in Malachi, God says, you can know who my son is. Because he'd be born in the seed of the woman, leading sin, sons of Abraham, line of Ireland, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family, just a house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 piece of silver, thrown floor in the temple, used to buy a potter's field, and it would be born in the little before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When did that happen? 70 AD. Then God eliminates every city of the world for his son's interest in humanity. Now think of this. He said, you can know who my son is because he'd be born of the seed of the woman, the lineage of the descendants of Abraham, the line of Ireland, line of Jacob, travel to the family, just the house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver thrown on the floor in the temple, used to buy a burial plot, and it'll all take place before 70 AD, and it'd be born in the city of Bethlehem, Ephrata. Do you realize when that prophecy was made, there wasn't even a thousand people living in Bethlehem? 333 prophecies, all fulfilled in one person. You know the probability of that. Let me just take eight of the prophecies. Just take eight of these prophecies that they could be written down before the person was born and fulfilled in their life. A mathematician worked it out. It would be one in every 10 to the 17th power. Whoa. That probability is just for eight, not 333 of them. Just for eight of these prophecies be fulfilled, be one in 10 to the 17th power. That means a 10 with 17 zeros. Now, if you understand that, you understand our national debt. And you don't understand our national debt. <laughs> but let me show you to picture that. And then I'll stop on the deity of Christ here. Take the state of Texas. I spent a wonderful week there one night. Take the entire state two feet deep of silver dollars. Two feet deep. 
take one silver dollar, put a little red check on it, then throw it back in and mix up the entire state. Use bulldozers, back holes, whatever you want. And then take and blindfold a person, a man or woman, and let them start blindfolded wading through this two feet deep of silver dollars. And just randomly in one minute, one hour, one day, one week, one month, that person just stops, totally blindfolded, reaches down and picks up a silver dollar out of the entire state, two feet deep, takes his mask off. The probability that he would pick the check silver dollar that had been checked and thrown into the entire state is the same probability that just eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in any one individual. And the greatest prophecy of all is in Isaiah, Ezekiel 36, 26. He said, I will place a new spirit within you and give you a new heart. And when Paul said, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. I truly believe my life, my story of Christ intervening in my life and changing me from the inside out is part of that prophetic evidence that he is who he claimed to be. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.